Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our September 2013 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Research has shown that depression is the main risk factor for suicidal behavior. Yet most antidepressant clinical trials exclude suicidal patients. Exclusion of this patient group has contributed to a lack of evidence-based treatments to reduce suicidal risk. In an effort to enhance clinical care for suicidal patients, researchers sought to identify depression symptoms most closely associated with suicidal thoughts and to identify which medications provide the fastest depression relief. To do this, they conducted a post hoc analysis of the data from their earlier work, a double-blind, randomized clinical trial comparing paroxetine, a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, and bupropion, a norepinephrine dopamine reuptake inhibitor, in a higher-risk sample of patients with major depressive disorder who were thinking about suicide or who had attempted in the past. The study received grant support from NIMH and NARSAD. 36 patients who took paroxetine were compared to the 38 patients who took bupropion in terms of treatment effects on specific depression symptom clusters. The clinical trial showed that change in suicidal thoughts was more strongly associated with change in core subjective mood symptoms as compared to physical symptoms. The authors found that paroxetine appeared to have a modest advantage over bupropion in reducing these core subjective mood symptoms during the first month of treatment. The results need replication, the authors conclude, but they suggest that selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor therapy may be modestly superior to norepinephrine dopamine reuptake inhibitor therapy for reducing suicidal thoughts in the first few weeks of treatment because of the way it produces greater reduction of core subjective mood symptoms of depression. Gauging short-term risk of suicidal behavior is a challenge in clinical settings as well as in studies of new medications that may affect suicide risk. A study funded by ERT was conducted to evaluate whether the Electronic Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale, a computer interview for patients, could identify short-term risk of suicidal behavior during placebo-controlled clinical trials of medications. More than 6,000 patients with depression, PTSD, insomnia, epilepsy, or fibromyalgia were interviewed at baseline and all subsequent study visits for a total of over 35,000 assessments. Patients reporting lifetime suicidal ideation with intent to act or prior suicidal behavior at baseline were four to nine times more likely to prospectively report suicidal behavior during the course of their study participation. 
The authors cite several possible benefits of computer-automated patient interviews, such as reducing clinician burden and increasing patients' self-disclosure. Computer-automated assessments also could simplify electronic storage and analysis of data on uncommon events, such as emergent suicidal ideation and suicidal behaviors. Stimulant treatment for ADHD is known to be efficacious, but parents, patients, and clinicians have been concerned that the use of these medications could harm the developing brain in children and adolescents. To address this issue, Dr. Spencer and colleagues reviewed neuroimaging studies that compared ADHD subjects who did and did not use stimulants. The study was supported in part by the Pediatric Psychopharmacology Council Fund of Massachusetts General Hospital. The authors found six studies of brain structure and 23 of brain functioning that met their criteria. The studies show that stimulant treatment does not negatively impact brain development or function. In contrast, they suggest that stimulant treatment attenuates the brain abnormalities that have been associated with ADHD. Although all treatment options should be considered for individual ADHD patients, these data suggest that concerns about the effects of stimulant medication on brain structure or function can be allayed and should not be a cause for not using these medications. It has been suspected that antipsychotic use may be one of the factors leading to increased risk for venous thromboembolism. To investigate this risk, a group of researchers in Taiwan conducted a nested case control study using a nationwide population-based medical claims database. They found that the risk of venous thromboembolism was increased by 52% in current antipsychotic users compared to non-users. In particular, the highest risk was seen in those who had just started using antipsychotics within the last month. There was no significant association between venous thromboembolism and past antipsychotic use. Interestingly, the authors also found that venous thromboembolism risk was higher in subjects with fewer major medical risk factors than in those with more medical risk factors. Children of depressed parents are three to four times more likely to develop depression than children of non-depressed parents making parental depression one of the best-established risk factors for depression in young people. However, not all children go on to develop problems. The clinical features of depression vary considerably between individuals. For example, parents with depression can differ from one another regarding the course and severity of their illness, the timing of their episodes, and the specific symptoms they experience. However, it is not clear how these differences might relate to children's risk of depression. This study examined whether specific depression symptoms in parents, such as low mood or loss of interest, differentially predicted future adolescent mood disorder and depression symptoms. 
337 parents with recurrent depression and their adolescent offspring were interviewed three times over a four-year period using research diagnostic interviews. The study examined nine symptoms that make up the DSM-IV criteria for major depressive disorder. Parental loss of appetite or body weight most strongly predicted future offspring mood disorder and depression symptoms. Parental appetite or weight loss predicted offspring outcomes even after taking into account other measures of parental depression severity, such as the total number of depression symptoms. These findings highlight the importance of heterogeneity in depression and suggest that specific clinical features of parental depression can provide a marker of early depression risk in offspring. Although prescription opioids often deliver rapid pain relief, there is growing concern over their misuse. These concerns are fueled by increases in emergency visits, hospital admissions, and fatal overdoses related to prescription opioids. As a result, there is keen interest in trends in community prescribing of opioids. While most people who misuse opioids do not obtain them directly from a physician, most misused opioids are either directly or indirectly received from a physician. An analysis of visits to office-based medical practices in the United States revealed that the percentage of visits that included a Schedule II opioid, such as oxycodone or hydrocodone, increased from 0.65% during the years 1995 through 1998 to 2.63% during the years 2007 through 2010. The increase in opioid prescriptions occurred more rapidly among middle-aged and older adults than among younger adults and remained little changed for children and adolescents. One reassuring trend is that there was a decline in the percentage of visits that included opioid prescriptions among patients with substance use disorders. Nevertheless, the authors note increases in opioid prescribing to patients who are making their first visit to the treating physician and patients who do not have pain as the primary reason for their visit are sources of particular potential concern. The authors conclude that the overall increase in opioid prescribing and office-based medical practice highlights the importance of remaining vigilant for indications of misuse of prescription opioids, informing all opioid-treated patients about the risks of abuse and overdose, and emphasizing to patients that it is essential to properly dispose of prescription opioids that are no longer needed. This study was funded by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and the National Institute of Mental Health. Post-stroke depression has a high prevalence and may compromise outcomes by deterring social participation and limiting the activities of daily living in stroke survivors. Previous studies have examined the effect of pharmacologic therapy and psychotherapy to prevent post-stroke depression. 
but the current study is the first to explore the effect of rehabilitative intervention in the first three months after stroke. This study investigated the association between stroke rehabilitation and the risk of post-stroke depression among first-time stroke patients in a population-based cohort study in Taiwan. The data were gathered from 1 million insured people registered in 2000 as part of a random sample of medical claims data. Between 2000 and 2005, almost 7,700 patients were admitted with first-time stroke, and 16.7% received rehabilitation programs within the first three months of admission. The endpoint was defined as any diagnosis of depression by a psychiatrist before the end of 2009. Results showed that the incidence density of post-stroke depression was 11.3 per 1,000 person years among patients who received rehabilitation and 18.5 per 1,000 person years among controls. Men who received rehabilitation, especially elderly men, had a significantly reduced risk of post-stroke depression. After the analyses were controlled for potential confounders, receiving rehabilitation was associated with a hazard ratio of 0.57 using a Cox proportional hazard model. The authors conclude that rehabilitation intervention in the first three months after admission for stroke is associated with reduced risk of post-stroke depression and that this beneficial effect is apparently greater among men, especially elderly men. As discussed in this month's Practical Psychopharmacology column, Famotidine is a potent selective histamine H2 receptor antagonist that has been investigated as an antipsychotic augmentation agent in treatment refractory schizophrenia, especially for negative symptoms. Case reports, open studies, and small randomized controlled trials of famotidine have shown differing improvements in psychosis, negative symptoms, general psychopathology, and other measures. Dr. Andrade discusses the current evidence and looks at the question of whether famotidine can be considered yet as a possible antipsychotic augmentation agent. Visit us online at psychiatrist.com to read Dr. Andrade's column and participate in the discussion. This month's ASCP Corner offering looks at antidepressant use in pregnancy and risk of autism spectrum disorders. On the surface, it appears from the literature that antidepressant use during pregnancy, especially during early pregnancy, increases the risk of autism spectrum disorders in the offspring. However, a critical examination shows that a causal association has by no means been established and that several other interpretations of the findings are possible. In closing, be sure to visit us online for book reviews, interactive activities from our CME Institute, and more from the September issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.